You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. Good morning again. Go ahead and turn your Bibles, Luke chapter 7. If you don't have one, uh, we would love for you to get in, in the Word with us this morning. We have some Bibles in the back. We have some ushers. If you'll just slip your hand up, they'll bring you one if you don't own a copy of God's Word. We would love for you to take that as a gift from us to you. So we're going to be diving into Luke chapter 7. And as we do that, I want to ask you a question. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? I don't know if you picked up on some of the songs that we sang this morning and, and, and congregationally worshipped the Lord together, but every single song made a declaration of who God is. And we, we, we sang these words, that He is our way maker. He's our miracle worker, our promise keeper. He's the light in the darkness. He is our God. But I want to ask you, do you believe that? So I think it's really easy to come together in this like worship setting as a church with the cool lights and all the sound and everything's really great because it looks amazing and the chords are hitting just right and the music's really pumping and we go, man, yeah, he is our way maker. But when life stinks and when life gets difficult, is he still that for you? Is, is he that miracle worker? When we read through the Bible, and maybe you're, you're a morning, quiet time, coffee person, and you're drinking your coffee, and you're going through the miracles in Scripture, and you get to that place where this awkward thing happens, where somebody's raised from the dead, or this miracle happens, do you still believe that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and forever? Is this who Jesus is? Recently, I was at a friend's house, and I don't know how the the, the topic came up, but we started uh, reminiscing on some worship songs, and he brought up a song that we, uh, I think, came out in 2008. The song is called Healer, and it's like, I believe that you're my healer. I believe that you are all I need, right? You go there, and you're like, oh, man, that's the truth, right? He is my healer. He is all I need. Well, I had forgotten the story behind that song, and our friend reminded me the story of the song. So the story of this song is this this pastor who who has cancer, and he's experiencing all of the struggles that cancer comes with and chemotherapy and all the things, and he writes this song because God is his healer, right? And he goes around. The song actually gets some, some really big popularity. This is actually like a year after I got saved. I remember this song like just being massive. And he begins touring around churches, and you see him singing the song. He's got like an oxygen tank on, and his head's shaved, and all his hair's gone. And and it's just this powerful song. There's only one problem. Dude never had cancer. Right? He wrote this amazing, strong song, making a declaration of who God is, and faked the entire thing. And I don't know about you. But like when I hear stories like that, there, there's a moment where I think Satan wants to try to shake my faith. He, he, he wants to try to take this, this one broken story, this, this one person who, for whatever reason, made a really bad decision. 
And he wants to take this truth that God is our healer, but because the, the human part of it, right? Man, because we broke this truth because we lied about something and we created this amazing song that made a declaration of who he is. Now, no longer that truth is no longer true, is what Satan wants us to believe. And it couldn't be further from the truth. I think sometimes if we're not careful, we, we come into this place as, as a church and we, we get into this congregational belief system, Meaning we come in, there's, there's, there's voices, it's loud, it's, it's, it's amazing. To, one, of my best, one of my favorite parts of congregational worship is when I hear you. I love Hunter, I love our vocalists, and I love great music, but when I hear the sounds of the saints, there's something that happens in my heart. And it's just this explosion of God's people and the love that he has for us and then the love that we have back to him that just really brings me joy. And I think there's something that happens in congregational worship where we come in, we sing these songs like he's our way maker. He, he is God. He, he, he loves us. And we're overjoyed. But if we're not careful when we walk out those doors, we are nothing, nothing more than like Jeffersonian imprints. And if you don't catch that reference, Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson was our third president. And he wrote, or I should say edited, the Bible. And this is, you might know him because he you know, was famous for the Louisiana Purchase and some of those other different things in, in history. But Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to John Adams saying this in 1814. He says, The whole history of these books, the Gospels, is so defective and doubtful that it seems vain to attempt minute in inquiry into it. And such tricks have been played with their text and with the text of other books relating to them that we have a right from that cause to entertain much doubt what parts of them are genuine. In the New Testament, there is internal evidence that parts of it have proceeded from an extraordinary man and that other parts are of the fabric of very inferior minds. It is as easy to separate those parts as to pick out diamonds from dung hills. Jefferson would go on to create his own version of the Bible, removing most of Jesus' miracles from the Gospels. And I think if we're not careful... I don't think you and I go home and mark out miracles in the Bible or cut them out like Thomas Jefferson did, but I do believe that we cut them out from our hearts. We go to those places in the text and we come across these stories of Jesus healing. We go, oh yeah, that was great. That was good for then. He's not doing that now. And we become Jeffersonian in our faith. For some reason, we can get to this place where we can trust that Jesus did, in fact, live a perfect life, did, in fact, die on a cross, defeat the grave, and then somehow has said to us, hey, if you'll just believe in me, I will give you eternal and abundant life. We, we, we don't struggle there. But then all of a sudden, we get to this place where we get to this question of healing and miracles, and we go, ah. I don't know. I've never seen it. I haven't experienced it. So we struggle to see him in that way. Today, my hope is that you and I will leave this place with, with a faith and with an assurance that Jesus is our healer right here and right now. No matter the circumstances or the timing in which healing comes. 
See, isn't that, we, we kind of treat gene, uh, Jesus like a genie, right? We, we go to our prayer box, and we go to our corner, and we rub that lamp, and we say, I need healing right now. And when he doesn't answer within five to ten minutes, he is no longer that person. But yet, we've forgotten who we are in light of who he is. We've forgotten the grand scope and, and the sovereignty of God. And in so many ways, we've just, we've created a broken theology. And so today, the title of my sermon is God is Healer. And so we're going to walk through this passage in Luke chapter 7. And by the end of it, I hope that each and every one of us can walk out of the door with a faith and assurance that he is that for you right here, right now. So let's dive in. Luke chapter 7, verse 1. It says, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, I want to make sure that we're kind of all walking in the same path together. That's kind of what Luke is doing right here. He's giving us a, a transition sentence. In case you didn't know, we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke for most of the year. We took the summer off, and we're picking it back up today in Luke chapter 7. And so I want to really quickly just catch you up on where we are. So Luke begins this, this account by uh, kind of displaying the foretelling of John the Baptist and Jesus and their birth. And then he goes to their birth stories and all of the, the miracles that happen surrounding those, those moments. And he kind of skips forward a couple of years and we get to this, this John's ministry portion where he's out you know, on the, in the sticks kind of preaching this, this repentance message, calling people to prepare the way for the Messiah. Get your hearts ready because somebody's about to come and change everything that you know. And that's when Jesus' ministry kind of begins. He gets baptized, and then from there he goes into the wilderness, and he's tempted, and he comes back. And there's a really important moment that happens as soon as he, as soon as he comes back. He walks into the synagogue, and in Luke chapter 4, he reads from Isaiah's scroll, and he says this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right here, he says he's going to do three things. He's going to proclaim, he's going to heal, and he's going to liberate. And Jesus leaves this moment, and he begins to do exactly that. He proclaims the kingdom of God is at hand, he heals people, and he's leading to the liberation that ultimately would be all of God's people, but first and foremost, the liberation of kind of re, or uniting the Gentiles and the Jews, although that most of the people at this point have no idea what that is. They're, they're thinking that Jesus has come to be this royal master, and he's going to come in, and he's going to get rid of the Roman oppressors, and so they're really ready for that liberation portion, and yet they're going to have to wait just a little while for that. You'll actually talk about this in about two weeks when we look at this passage from John the Baptist at the end of chapter 7. But Jesus comes and he does these things. And so people are hearing about Jesus. And directly leaving, uh, right directly before our text today, what Jesus does is he goes to the Mount of Beatitudes. And he preaches the most famous sermon ever that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And in this place, he says what to most people would be a bunch of crazy things. And he leaves this moment. This is where Luke is kind of setting us up to know what's happening because Jesus has said a bunch of really out there things to a bunch of people 
on this Mount of Beatitudes in this sermon, and he says he leaves this place, and he goes down to Capernaum. Now, it'll be really cool in about a year, for those of you who are going to the Holy Land, you'll see the kind of connection of where these places are. So you have the, the northern sea of, of Galilee, and you have Capernaum that's kind of like right here, and then just to the northwest is the Mount of Beatitudes. And this is where Jesus was originally preaching that sermon, and he goes just a little bit southeast, and he is now in Capernaum. Let's pick up in verse 2. It says, Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So a centurion is, is really just kind of a name for a Roman soldier. And right here, he's experiencing something that you and I experience from time to time as well. He is going to a friend, asking that friend to ask another friend for a favor. You've probably been in this situation, right? Hey, I need you to go do this for me. This person over here, I need a job. And so I know that this person works here. Can you go ask them for a to see if I can get a job, or maybe you're trying to holler at that girl or that guy, and you're like, hey, I, I know that you know this person, and I'm single, and they're single, so why don't you hook it up, right? Instead of just sliding into their DMs, you're trying to, like, get the connection, right? You've all been there. We've all had this moment. Maybe you've posted on Facebook, I'm looking for a really great drywall guy, right? You're asking for something from a friend of a friend, and that is what the centurion is doing right here, and he, he's going, and he's saying, hey, I need help for this highly valued Servant. I find it really interesting that the Greek word here is antimos. And really what the, this word highly valued for this servant really kind of translates to, is, highly valued is a good one, but it also kind of has, has a closer to your heart connotation. It's to be dear and to be precious and to be honorable. And so the centurion really cares about this servant. This isn't just somebody working in his house that he, he really doesn't care much about at all. This is somebody he, he values very highly. And so the servant is sick. And he, he, he's tried all the things he can, we, we would assume, right? And so he's heard about this miracle worker. He has heard about this Jesus. Well, how has he heard about this Jesus, you may ask, as you're reading the text? And I think you can easily go back to what we talked about from Isaiah's scroll in Luke chapter 4. Jesus came to do three things. And you know what he did? At that point, he certainly did two of them. He proclaimed and he healed. Imagine if someone was in Macon proclaiming the kingdom of God at hand and then doing miraculous things. A lot of us would hear, would hear about what's going on. A lot of us would see these things on social media and other places. We go, man, what is happening here? And when something extraordinary was happening in our own life and we needed help, we would, we would probably do the similar steps that this centurion did, right? We go, man, I need some help. Maybe this Jesus guy can help. I think it's interesting that if you think about how Jesus said what he was going to do and then he did what he was going to do, I wonder if the church ever did what it says it was going to do, what would happen in our communities. Like if we ever actually lived out the Great Commission, instead of just coming in rooms and talking about it. If we ever actually lived in those identities that we've been talking about and we're going to continue to talk about of like being a family together, like loving each other deeply, 
like a family, serving each other, being servants, not just to the people in the walls, but to those outside of our walls as well, like serving people deeply, getting our lives messy, because I don't know if you know this or not, but the gospel is messy. Because he didn't just call you to come and sit in a comfy green chair. He called you to gather to scatter, to be a servant because he served. And then he's called you to be a missionary, each and every one of us. What if we did what he's called us to do? You think people would hear like the centurion heard of Jesus? I do. So why does the centurion send somebody else to go talk to Jesus? Probably because he doesn't think he has access to him. So the centurion is a Gentile, and Jesus is a Jew. And so I don't know if you know much about the Jew-Gentile separation in that time, but there wasn't a lot of crossover. There wasn't a whole lot of like, hey, let's, let's go grab a beer together, you know? They were kind of going in different directions. There were not always hangout moments. As a matter of fact, this Roman guard, probably to the average Jew, would not have been looked at very highly. Now, obviously, he has some friends in high places, but everyone wouldn't have known that, right? And so the centurion sends some friends. He goes, hey, I need a favor. Go, go speak to this Jesus guy. We can tell that, obviously, the centurion's a good guy. He's built the synagogue for these people, and obviously, he's got some money. We don't know where that came from. And so the centurion's kind of this good person that we can see from the context of what's going on in this text, And so he reaches out and he says, hey, Jesus, I have a highly favored, a highly valued person in my life, and I need your help. And Jesus responds. Let's pick back up. Verse 6. It says, and Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man sat under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my service, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at them. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, Not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Okay. Let's go back to that coffee moment wherever you do your quiet time in the morning, right? You read the first couple of verses, and you're like, ah, this dude's about to get healed. He's reaching out to Jesus. Amazing. Hold on. Verse 6 comes. Changes his mind? What? What are you talking about? Like, what is this? What is this? Hold on. At one moment, hey, Jesus, come here. And then the next minute, nah, never mind. You're good, bro. Don't worry about it. I, I, maybe you didn't have that moment right now just reading that, but there's definitely been moments where I've opened this script, this, this, this scripture right here and gone, what is this dude doing? Like, one minute he's got this full of faith, and the next minute he's like doubting Thomas. Is that what we're looking at? I don't think so. I don't think that's what's happening. Why, why does the centurion seemingly change his mind? I think there's some that would say that there, there might be like a, a Jewish-Gentile thing going on where uh, there, there has to be certain protocols and clean, cleanings that have to happen in order for this Jewish person to enter the Gentile house, and I, I, don't, I don't buy into that. I think the most likely answer is this. 
The centurion had faith that Jesus didn't need to be near the servant to heal him. And I think what God is revealing to us in this passage, and he does it through a writer in Hebrews 4 too, but it basically says that when we approach the throne with confidence, it isn't as much about our physical posture, but it is about our spiritual posture. Think about that. When, when we approach Jesus for healing, for help, for assurance, in time of need, it isn't as much about, hey, make sure you did your quiet time this morning at 6.27 a.m. so that you had plenty of time to go take a shower and get to work and all this. It isn't as much about when you did it and how you did it. Were you in your car? Were you distracted? Were you this? Because I think that's where we get, we get bogged down, right? If I don't do it exactly these ways, then my quiet time really didn't matter. It's a lot more about our spiritual posture. Like when we come to Jesus, are we fully expectant to see him do a miracle? He says that faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. The spirit of the living God will move the immovable if we have the Faith the size of a mustard seed. What was once impossible is now made possible in Jesus. What was once dead is now in him alive. What was once forgotten and dismissed is now valued and cherished. The centurion's faith, the faith of Gentile, was one that recognized the authority and the power of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I don't want you to miss this. The centurion wasn't the one who was sick. Do you get this? Like he wasn't going and crying out to the Lord for his own needs. What was he doing? He was going for a friend. He, he, he was going to the Lord and saying, I need healing but it's not for me, it's for my friend. That's a servant's heart. That's a family person's heart. This is why it matters who you have in your circles. This is why it matters who you call family. This is why it matters who you commune with and who you do life with. Because I want people in my corner who, when they know that life has hit the fan and things are bad and I am struggling and I don't know what to do and I've gotten to this place where I feel like I'm overwhelmed and there's too much going on, I want you in my life who is going to go to Jesus and say, Chris needs healing. Jesus, do it like only you can. Are you that for somebody else? Do you do that? Do you, do you believe that Jesus can provide you healing, can provide somebody else healing? The centurion calls for Jesus to heal his valued servant, and Jesus heals him. I love that little story that, or illustration that he uses. He, he explains the supernatural with kind of an explanation of the natural. So the centurion could be overseeing anywhere between like 100 or 2,000 people, depending on where he was and how big the city and all the different things, right? 
And so he, he kind of just relays this message to Jesus, like, I understand how things work and the control and the power that you have. Because when I look at this person and I say, hey, go do this thing, they respond to me, yes, sir, right? When I say jump, they say how high. And so in essence, what he's looking at Jesus and saying is, you've got the supernatural just like that. Like when the demons, when, when the brokenness of this world come, all you have to say is jump, and they're saying how high. I get it. And I'm just going to rest in your sovereignty. I understand authority, and you have it. Do we come to Jesus like that? Do we recognize the authority that he, that he has? And when we read the Bible, do we see Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, moving in such a way that the immovable can be moved, that death can move to life, that things can change, that relationship in your life today that's broken, that's maybe even severed. You feel like there could never be a reuniting moment. They're too far gone. There's been too much of this. Do you see that Jesus could be moving even though you don't see him moving. Maybe he's moving in your heart to repent of something that you did wrong. I mean, let's just be honest. When relationships, when relationships break, it usually isn't 100% on them. We like to say that though, right? Like, you're the one who messed up. I didn't do anything wrong. And I think if we'll search our hearts, Jesus reveals a very different truth. That you and I break stuff just like they broke stuff. And so maybe he's moving to, to show you and convict you of sin in your life. Maybe there's an area where you're unhealthy. You have an addiction. You have this thing you can't, keep, you can't stop watching or you can't keep scrolling from. And you're going, Jesus, heal me. And then you pull out your phone and you have no safeguards in place. You're just kind of hoping that it happens through like osmosis. And you're putting yourself in this situation time and time again. You're going, ah, Jesus, why aren't you healing me? And Jesus is saying, look, I've given you tools. I pointed you to this. I pointed you to that. Where are you taking steps in humble obedience? Like, I've told you to follow me in such a way. I've told you to do some of these things to safeguard your life. I've told you to rest and Shabbat and have a Sabbath and put a screen away maybe. Ah, that's, that's, that's Old Testament. That's not New Testament. We don't need to rest. We got stuff to do. We got production that's got to happen. I, I've got a job. I got kids. I got this sport. I got this thing. I got I to do all this stuff. Jesus, I just need you to speak to me when I'm in the car alone. I'll turn the radio down and that is when you can reveal all the things that you need to reveal. Jesus comes in, and he does a miracle. And I think in some ways, we might become callous to these miracles, not because of the miracle, but because we've become callous to God himself. Like, we, 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 don't, we don't truly trust and believe that he is who he says he is, that he has come to be your way maker, that he has come to show you light in the darkness. And we don't even expect to convene with him. Like when we, 
go to our quiet times, when we're worshiping in the car, when we're worshiping congregationally, do we really expect a move of God? I'm not talking about some like weird thing where there's like gold dust coming out of the air conditioning vents. I'm talking about like a move of God, right? Like we, we go to this passage, <clears throat> Matthew 18, and we, we like to quote this one, right? For where two or more are gathered, you are there. Do you know the context of that passage? There's a disagreement in the church. And where two or more are gathered, he is there. Now, if he is in the middle of disagreement, how much more would he be in unity? Right? Like, how much more could his presence kind of be manifest to a degree if all of us are unified, walking in this door going, man, he's amazing, man, he's majestic. Like, we're just here to worship you and fall down on our knees because you are so good and you are so amazing and worthy. When is the last time in faith, like honest, like open faith, arms wide open, you asked God for healing? When did you open your scriptures and expect for these words that are living and active to penetrate you? Or do we just kind of go through the motions? Do we just, oh, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get to it. I'll just read my verse of the day. And look, I'm not trying to knock reading a verse of the day. It's good. There's a starting point for all of us. But I try to like, put in practice, when I opened this, this word, I had a pastor one time that he literally, he made us all do this. It got a little cheesy after a while, but... In my like, personal life, it's amazing. Every time we opened the Bible on Sunday morning, he'd go, oh. it was cheesy. He's an amazing mentor, though, a great guy. But I, it reminds me that like, this is his word. And it's not just a publishing document. It's not just you know, humans that somehow wrote these words and they're good advice. Like it is the inspired word of God to us. I think in some ways we doubt the miracles of God because we doubt God as a whole. And we need to get to this place where we trust in him for everything. It's like I said, if we can believe that Jesus created everything, triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, created us in his image, we broke against all things and against him specifically, and then he came even while we were still sinners and died and resurrected and then gave us a way to the Father again. Why can we not believe that he could heal you right here and now? Why do we not believe that miracles can still be done in his name? I think in some ways it's because we, we get out of the rhythms of following in Jesus and that's why I'm really excited about these MCs that we'll be launching in about a month where we're starting the training and the moments for them now. Because if we could start living in this rhythm of recognizing each other and those identities in Christ that you are a family, you are a servant, you are a missionary, and we as a family servant missionaries go to lead people to love him and love others and invest in his kingdom, then we'll start having these rails in place for us to see what we never thought we could see. These rhythms are things that are basically us crying out to say, God, help 
my belief in its unbelief. Like, help me to trust in you. What if we started living in such a way like Jesus walked this earth when he said he was going to do something, he did it. What if the church started doing that? What's keeping you from a faith that we see modeled here? The band's going to come up, and I'm just going to close really quickly. For the person who might be sitting here, and you're saying, I don't know about this whole Jesus stuff. I just kind of walked into the room this morning. Somebody invited me, whatever. I want to really just strongly encourage you to, to think about something. There's a scripture that says this world like declares who you are. Like when we walk out and we see the wind blowing and the trees and the birds, like there's a declaration that this didn't just bang and come together. There is a, a God who created it all. And we believe that that God is the triune God, God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And he created us, each and every one of us, perfectly. But then Adam and Eve ate from the tree. And because of them, that, that sin, that rebellion that they started came to us. And in case you're sitting there going, ah, I wouldn't have done it. Yeah, you would have. Right? You would have. You say, you know, I, I wouldn't have sinned. I wouldn't have done this. But, you, but how often do you, you mess up? Right? How often do you miss the mark? You do it all the time. Like, that's just who you are. And so sin came in and broke everything in the world. That's where disease and death and all these things came from. And God could have just like wrote us off right then and ended the story. But he didn't. He had, he had a plan all along to send his son Jesus in the form of a human. Took on flesh, became sin, he who knew no sin. Lived a perfect life, meeting all of the laws, specifications that are laid out in the Old Testament. And then became the sacrificial lamb. Because the law was perfect and it needed to be kept. And when we couldn't keep it, we had to like do this sacrificial thing where we would sacrifice lambs and goats and pheasants and all these other animals to atone for sins in our life. And Jesus became the Passover lamb for us. And he says, anyone who puts their faith in me, believes in me, can have eternal life. And all you gotta do is believe. I'd encourage you this morning to think about that. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, you can do it right here, right now. Say, Jesus, I, I believe. I recognize that I'm a sinner. And that sin has separated me from you. But I also recognize that you made a way. And so I put my faith, I believe in you. Miracles and all. If you're in the room this morning and you're a believer, and some of what I've been talking about where you struggle to believe in the miracles hit, hit true, hit home with you, I, I first and foremost... I would pray for you to just ask God to open your eyes, to, to repent, to, 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 to say, hey, Lord, help me believe. Help me to see who you are. I'd also encourage you to come to missional community training over the next four weeks. 
to hear about how we're going to build these rhythms in each other and in our lives to help us walk in the faith and assurance and the fullness that God has for us, to be a family of servant missionaries who lead people to love God, love others, and invest in his kingdom. If you want to take a next step this morning, there's a QR code in the seat back in front of you. I encourage you to take your phone out at some point in the next few minutes, scan that, fill some information out. I'd love to talk with you. I'll be down front during this next song. I'd love to pray with you. God is still the healer. He's still the way maker. Will we allow him to be so in our lives? Let's pray. Lord, as you've been faithful then, you'll be faithful now. I pray that each and every one of us underneath the sound of my voice, by the power of your spirit, will see where we've gone astray. We'll see the error of our ways and we'll come back to you that we'll live in light of the gospel, that we'll, we'll walk in the abundance that you've promised us through your son by the power of your spirit. I pray that we'll see these miracles as exactly what they are, as, as they're the expression of your glory. And they reveal to us each and every beautiful characteristic of who you are. Help us to not short side who you are, but to trust in you for all things. It's in your son's name I pray. And God's people said.